Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We're going to actually spend a little time in Hebrews today to look at, at uh, core value number two. Um, and uh, so we're going we're gonna to start here in Hebrews 12. Now, obviously, uh, there have been 11 chapters prior to this in Hebrews. You probably could have figured that out, even if you're unfamiliar with Scripture. Uh, that Hebrews 12 comes after Hebrews 1 through 11. But this is kind of a... Hebrews 12 begins with the word, therefore. And the therefore goes back to the previous chapter, where he talked about all these incredible examples that we have. That we have all these people who are by faith continuing to, to, that they followed, they waited, people before the Messiah, that they were waiting for the Messiah, that they were waiting by faith. And so the author of Hebrews has been spending really 11 chapters talking about the importance of faith, that where God is leading us, where Jesus is leading us, what we learn in the new covenant is that the most important command, the most important act that we do as people who follow God is to trust God. And, and so faith is really the theme and the message of Hebrews. And then he comes to this, Hebrews 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people in the past who have lived by faith, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the race, sorry, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so much opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So he says here at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, what he does in a lot of ways, and the reason I wanted to start here is because what he does in a lot of ways is he reiterates what we called the Great Commission last week. That Jesus said, I want you to teach everything that I have taught you and make disciples of all nations. And the author of Hebrews has been saying for 11 chapters that a disciple of Jesus is one who trusts in him, who rests in him, who comes to him for that rest. And, and now he says, we have a whole bunch of witnesses, everybody in scripture leading up to now, all the heroes were heroes of faith. And they showed us that this is the important thing. And now he says, what we have to do as a community is keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not get confused by anything else. Again, our name is Focus, and that's part of the reason we called our church Focus is because it's all about our focus. You know, is our, our, our eyes fixed on Jesus? Is that where our focus is in everything we do? And so he says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then he points out that it's hard to endure, that sometimes it's hard to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that there's, there are so many things that hinder And not just sin. Notice he says that sin entangles us, but there's also just anything that can hinder us. So good things can hinder us. They can get in our way. So he's kind of pointing out again, here we are as a community. Our job is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so discipleship, which is the core value beneath all our core values, is helping people to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. It's helping each other to keep our focus on the right place so that we keep running the race in the right direction. The idea is that we've got our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we don't get distracted by the people running around us. They don't get distracted by the crowds. We don't get distracted by the, the, uh, the scenery. We don't trip over our own feet. We are focused on Jesus and we keep moving towards him. Otherwise we might get off track. We might end up a little bit to the side and we help each other to stay focused. And so somehow as a church, we're to teach each other to stay focused. 
But he goes from here into an interesting chapter where I think the way he describes that we do this, I think is, can be a little bit surprising and very encouraging. At least it is for me. I think as a pastor, I had a particular idea of what my responsibility was in discipleship that wasn't very fun, but I just thought it was just our duty. But I think it turns out that what God has planned for us is both fun and important. I mean, not always, but in this case. He goes on and he says this. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, you, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. I just told you this was going to be fun. This doesn't sound fun, <laughs> right? And this is not the fun part. This is important, but it's not the fun part. He says here, he's, what he's saying is he reminded us that Jesus endured even to the point of the cross. And then he's saying to the Hebrews, you may be struggling. You may be having some, some persecution. They were facing a persecution most of us have never experienced, um, a real genuine persecution where their lives were on the line. And they were wondering why they should keep enduring. And it would be very easy. I'm sure you can imagine it would be very easy to lose your. It's easy enough for us in the world we live in, which is a lot of serenity and a lot of easiness. And nobody's coming in the door to stop us from doing what we're doing tonight. We can do it across the airwaves. Nobody cares. And yet we lose focus. And yet we forget to endure. And he's pointing out to them. He recognizes how hard it can be for them when they have so many things that are entangling them. Persecution and people against them and actual danger to their lives. But he says, Jesus endured. He stayed focused in his mission, even to the point of death. And then he just makes this sort of simple, but not necessarily encouraging statement that, well, you haven't done that yet. <laughs> and what's, what's interesting about it is this is one of those statements that will be inherently true that you can never argue with because if you're reading these words, then it is true. <laughs> you have not done this to the point of death. And for the people to, who have done it to the point of death, they will never read these words. So it is absolutely true, but that is the point he's saying. But then he goes on, and he says this, he says, have you forgotten though, that, that, that the Lord's discipline and the real, the word for discipline is really training. Okay. That doesn't mean it isn't unpleasant. It is. It's training. Don't make light of the Lord's training and don't lose heart when he rebukes you. So even when he is correcting you, when you're doing something wrong and he's having to train you and the training is painful. Remember that God only does that because he loves you. Now, again, that might be a little encouraging when you're undergoing discipline. It's still not a lot of fun, but it, 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 it might be encouraging. But this is the context. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, endure hardship then as discipline. So this is the point. Everything is hard. Now, I want to be clear. He's not saying that everything that is hard is caused by God to train you. But he is saying that everything is hard can be used by God to train you. That God won't allow any hardship to be wasted, to be worthless, to be pointless. I think some of the hardship, much of the hardship we encounter is because other people are sinful, because other people are mean, because other people are bad, because, because the world is falling apart, because entropy is real, because things <clears throat> don't work like they should, because illness and bad weather and all these things happen. So it's not saying that God directly causes all those for your training. I think it's dangerous to ever look at somebody who's struggling and saying, well, you must be doing something wrong and God is training you. It's always easy to say that when you're feeling good and they're not. And you're not the one being 
Exactly, exactly. Did we learn anything from Job? <laughs> so I think his encouragement here isn't, you deserve this, think of it that way. His encouragement is, you are experiencing it already. Recognize that God loves you through it. That there is a training that's happening here. That God isn't letting this just be pointless and worthless and meaningless. He's bringing meaning out of something which otherwise might be. He says, endure hardship as discipline. That's how you should think of it. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? By the way, this is not completely a rhetorical question. I think you're supposed to think through the answer. And the answer is a bad one. A bad father, right? Children of a bad father. That's the answer. What children are not disciplined by their father? Children who don't have a father or children whose father is bad because he never, ever trains them. So he says, what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. I love the way even here the author of Hebrews is very careful, right? He could just say, if you are not disciplined, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And somebody who's having a good time with life might say, oh, I, I guess that proves I'm not. But he actually goes in here and says, everybody's disciplined. You may not recognize it or not, but we're all being trained. And then he says this, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we, should we submit to the father of spirits and live? And of course, the other Hebrews knows this may not strictly be true of everybody. Not everybody had fathers that disciplined them. Some didn't have fathers at all. Not everybody had fathers that disciplined them well. And so they didn't respect them for it. But he's saying in general, this is how we understand a good father. A good father does train. He does discipline and we respect them for it. So how much more? Should we understand that of God? All of this has just been his way of saying, I know things are hard right now, but one encouragement I have for you is that you're not dead yet. That may not sound like a lot, but when that's an actual possibility, that actually could be something, right? Think if you every day you thought you might die and every day you come to the end of the day and you're alive, you might think, actually, hey, that's encouraging. <laughs> so you haven't disciplined, you haven't endured that. But the other encouragement is the fact that you're going through hardship doesn't mean God doesn't love you because this is how sometimes we read trials, isn't it? We say, well, God must not love me or I must be doing something wrong. And he's not saying either of those things. He's saying this is part of the process that God uses to train you in your life. But none of this is the core value we're getting to. This is all backdrop. It's important backdrop. But this is all backdrop to the point I want to get to. So he begins to say some things about discipline and to talk about the importance of it. And one of the things he says right here in this passage is he says, see discipline the way you would from a good father as an act of love, respect it and submit to it. There's a, there's a moment where Jesus says to Paul, so Paul was a guy who was persecuting the church. He was actually um, killing Christians and, and at, least he, at least he was approving of the killing of Christians. Probably killed some, but we don't know that for sure. But he was against the church and he thought he was following God. And one day when Jesus gets his, gets his attention and kind of knocks him over, Jesus says an interesting thing to Paul. That, at that time, he's called Saul. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? And this is a phrase that doesn't mean anything to us, but here's what it means. If you had an ox that you had attached to a yoke and he was, you were plowing that yoke, there's one thing that happens is an ox can decide he doesn't want to work with you anymore and he can start kicking with his back legs. And so what they did is they had these big old sticks that had big sharp points on them. And when the ox would kick backwards, you would poke him with the goad. And the more they kicked backwards, the more it hurt because the goads would be right there for them to kick against. And so what Jesus is saying to Saul is, look, you're just, you think you're serving me, but you're fighting against me and you're making everything harder. And I think this is part of the author of Hebrews message is that 
how much more should we submit to the Father's spirits and live? Just recognize he's on your side. Quit fighting against God. He really is on your side. He's just trying to train you like a father who loves you. Don't fight against him. You know, when, when your father is teaching you to drive and he says, don't drive on the wrong side of the road, don't fight against that because that will hurt a whole lot more. Right? Not that that's ever happened to me. It really hasn't. That would be an extreme case. But then I get to the part that I love best. And this is what he says. He says, they, referring to fathers, right? He says, think of them as fathers, because even fathers, even, even as we are. He says, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. I want you to notice the contrast here, because I think it's very telling and very interesting. He says, they, fathers, disciplined as they thought best for a little while. And this is true. As a dad, I discipline my kids. I know it's for a season. They get to a certain age. I really can't do any more training. It's kind of over. They're not going to listen to me, and there's really nothing I, I could sort of discipline them with at that point. So it's a little while, but it's also as I think best. As I go through life, I do my best to discipline kids. And here's what I want to say. One of the biggest differences between new parents of, of children or parents who haven't had children yet but are planning on it, one of the biggest differences between those group of parents and parents who have been children for 15 years is that this group over here thinks that they know how to discipline and this group over here knows that they don't. <laughs> it's, it's one thing you learn as you're a father for a long time is we're really bad at this. We're doing the best we can. The author of Hebrews is not saying we shouldn't try, but he's saying the thing to understand is that fathers do the best they can for a little while, but God actually does what is good for you. So God doesn't just do his best and hope it works out. God disciplines perfectly. This is the contrast. We discipline, sometimes we get it wrong. We're too harsh, we're too lenient, or we do it entirely wrong. Or we train them in the wrong things altogether. Sometimes we get it wrong. We're doing our best, but sometimes we get it wrong. But God actually disciplines us for our best. What he does, he actually knows what he's doing, and he actually does it well. And he goes on, he says, in order that we may share in his holiness, he says this, no discipline, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. I think that's an important just statement of fact. Nowhere does scripture tell us that when we engage in trials or discipline, we're supposed to pretend that we enjoy it. It does say rejoice, but that's not the same as saying pretend you enjoy the discipline. <laughs> it's okay to recognize this sucks, I don't like it. This is not fun. This is not pleasant. So he says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God does it because later on, it will bring you righteousness and peace. Okay, so here's the things we know about God. God does it for our good, and he knows how to do it exactly right. He does it exactly for our good. Now, Here's the interesting thing. Sometimes when we read this, and, and we're a church, and we're reading this, and we're reading all about this, and we're reading about discipline, and we're reading about hardship, and we're reading about how good discipline is, and we know that we're supposed to help each other stay focused on Jesus, sometimes we think, well, we want to be like God, and that is good. So what we should do is we need to make sure that we discipline each other. We need to make sure that we come in, and we help each other stay focused on, with this kind of tough love where we're always making things just a little harder for each other so that we can discipline each other and we'll be trained and we'll move forward. So that we're always on the lookout for the wrong moves that someone might be making. We're always on the lookout for a sin that they might be in. We're always on the lookout for them making a wrong direction or having a bad attitude. And our job is to correct them whenever that happens. 
because our responsibility is to make sure we stay on track by calling out all the sin and all the error and all the mistakes we make. But the problem is, if that's what we think this passage is saying, we actually weren't paying very good attention. Because didn't he just tell us that we're bad at that? He did. (laughs) All he told us is that he told us two things, that God is perfect at it and that we are bad at it. So to take from that, that our job is to do what we're bad at and God is perfect at, I think is to miss the point. And in fact, he goes on to say something else. Because if we're not supposed to discipline, if we're supposed to leave that to God, I mean, think about that for a moment. For some of us, that is freeing. As a pastor, that's freeing. It's easy as a pastor, and I think a lot of pastors have been taught this, to think that your job is to be on the lookout for error and correct it. But I'll tell you what, it's very freeing for me to discover that God does that better than I do and that I can actually trust him to do it. But then the question becomes, what is our job? What are we supposed to do then? If we're not training each other, then what are we to do? Are we like fathers simply to do our best at discipline? No, and I'd say not for this reason. I'm not your dad, except for those of you of who I am. <laughs> yeah, Lauren's like, what a way to find out. <laughs> I'm not your dad. You're not my dad. We don't even have that human obligation to do our best to train each other because we're not each other's parents, except where we are. So, what does he need, mean for us to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, he says this, and I want to be clear. I do not skip any verses, okay? This is not one of those tricks where I read about this one and then I jumped to another verse. This is the very next verse. This is the progression. This is the flow that the author of Hebrews gives. He says, discipline is hard. It's not painful. God does it really well. You don't do it really well, but he does it for your good. And then he says this, therefore, knowing that God does it really well, therefore, he says... Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now, here's what's interesting. If you're already in a certain mindset where life is hard and what we're supposed to do is, you know, help each other out and stay disciplined and stay focused, you might read this as a buck up kind of verse where he's saying, look, God's going to discipline you. So stand up straight. Strengthen your arms. Strengthen your feeble knees. Don't be such a wimp. Take it like a man, man, even if you're a woman. Right. That could be the way you could read this. But that actually doesn't make any sense if we keep reading, which is always a good idea. Even without knowing something I'm going to tell you about this verse, the next verse should straighten out for us that this does not mean you individually buck up under God's discipline. Because he goes on and he says this, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. That's a weird thing to say if he's just saying to you personally, right? Strengthen your arms, strengthen your knees, and then make level paths for yourself so that you're, if you're lame, you want, what does that mean? How can you maybe be, it's, here's the problem with the way we're reading this. We do not understand that the you here is y'all for Texans and you guys for New Mexicans. It's a plural you. It's not a singular you. It would have been clear to the Hebrew readers. He's not saying, therefore, you individual person, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. He's saying, therefore, all of you in the community, you guys, y'all, all of y'all strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. What he means is look around you in the church and who's struggling, who's having a hard time, who looks like they might collapse under the weight of the hard life that they're living. Who's, who's wrestling with things who just can't stand up anymore under it. He's not saying 
they need to just buck up. And he's certainly not saying your job is to go to them and tell them to buck up. No, because that's not what this says. It says that you as part of the community are to strengthen them. How do you strengthen someone else's arms and knees? You hold them. You don't chastise them, right? If, if someone's walking in and they are struggling and they have a limp or they're really wrestling with walking, you don't help them by saying, walk better. You help them if they want help by holding them, by lifting them up, by walking with them. And then that makes more sense when he goes on to say, make level paths for all of your feet. He's saying that, look, life is hard and the journey is difficult. And so when the road ahead is bumpy and you see someone who's having a hard time with those bumps, your job is not to chastise them and tell them to buck up. Your job is to smooth out the path for them. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And I think the author of Hebrews recognizes, and I think we all do if we're honest, that this changes. We're all lame at some moments, right? This isn't just like find those poor people that are just not as good as you. This is who's struggling right now. Who's having a hard time? And here's what's fascinating about this. This can sometimes feel wrong. Because who made that road bumpy, or at least who promised that they will use that bumpy road to make you stronger? God did. So on the one hand, God says, look, life is hard, it's discipline, and you need to respect it and submit to it. But when you look at your friend, God doesn't say you need to submit to it for them. He says, you need to try to smooth it out for them. Doesn't that seem weird? It's like God has two plans at once which are not incompatible, but they are in our heads until we think it through. And one plan is, I am perfect at disciplining, so I'll take care of that. But I also know that you all need help. Now, God also helps. Let's not pretend he doesn't. But one of the ways he helps is he says, look, if the road is hard, don't worry about that you're, you're not working against me if you make the road smoother. You're working with me if you make the road smoother. I can do my discipline better, says God, in a context where there's a community making it easier. If there's any part of discipleship which you think is about making the road harder for someone else, I want to set you free from that and say that is not in Scripture anywhere. And that may sound silly to you, and if it does, praise God, but trust me, there are people for whom that does not sound silly. That's what they've been taught. That's what they learned. That, that I even remember someone sharing an analogy of a, of a, 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 a caterpillar when a caterpillar comes out of a cocoon as a butterfly, they have, really have to fight their way through. And if you open the cocoon for them, then the butterfly won't be strong enough and its wings will be bad and they will die. And they use this as an analogy to say, this is why we shouldn't help each other too much. Well, that's an interesting analogy, but it's not in the scripture anywhere. I don't even know if it's true. It might be, but that's not the goal in scripture. If we have the opportunity to open someone's cocoon, we should do it. God can strengthen their wings anyway. If we have the opportunity to smooth out the path, we should do it. God will discipline them anyway. See, discipline will come. Hardship will come. Life is hard. I don't know why we think we have to make it harder. It's hard enough. Nobody's going to go through without their wings strengthened. The cocoon is there. Our job is to make the road as smooth as possible. So the author of Hebrews understands that. The author of Hebrews is giving this encouraging message where he says God is doing perfect discipline and he knows that's hard. And so he expects us to make the way smoother for each other so that we aren't stumbled 
We don't fall and we don't collapse. We work with God when we make someone's life a little easier, not when we don't. Sometimes it feels like we're letting people get away with something. If they've done something wrong and we still make the way smoother for them, we feel like we're letting them get away with something. But I've got to tell you the truth. And if you are honest with yourself and you really think through it, I bet you know this too. And if you don't, then I will pray you encounter opportunities like this because it just means you have not had enough loving people in your life. Because here's what I know. I know that some of the times I've learned the most about God and found my devotion increase and my faith in him increase is when somebody in the community, in the church, gave me grace that I did not deserve. When I messed up, and instead of making that harder for me or somebody saying, well, this is what you deserve, well, this is what you get, when they showed me grace, it taught me more about the grace of God than anything else in my life. Grace is the call of the hour for us. And that's why core value number two for us is we seek to make everyone's journey just a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, a stewardship of God's grace. We seek to make everyone's journey just a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, a stewardship of God's grace. This idea of stewardship of God's grace, we're going to talk about a lot more in detail. That's a really important concept for us. It's one of our core values. We're going to get to that later, but we'll just touch on it briefly now to kind of give you the idea. But I want to make sure we don't miss this. One of our core values is we believe that as a church, based upon these Hebrew passages and other things, we believe that our job is to make each other's journey just a little easier by being kind, by being serving, by speaking the right words at the right times and giving the right service at the right moment. But we furthermore believe that when we do this, it is a stewardship of God's grace. So let's talk about that phrase, stewardship of God's grace, just very briefly. First, the word stewardship. Stewardship is simply something that we don't own, that we are put in charge of to administer on behalf of someone else. Right? So if you're given a stewardship of, of some money, somebody gives you some money, you don't own that money, they're not giving it to you. They're saying, now you are to use this money to do what I want you to do. So if you're a stockbroker, someone gives you money to invest in certain stocks, you're not supposed to invest in whatever you want. You're not supposed to use the money for your own gain. If you do, that's called embezzlement and you go to jail. <laughs> stewardship is being given something that belongs to someone else that you are then supposed to administer on their behalf. So it says we have a stewardship of God's grace. So God is giving us grace that belongs to him, but he wants us to administer it on his behalf. So the next question becomes, what is grace? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of definitions you can find, and, there are, and most of them are fine. I don't have like huge issues with them. But I find a lot of them are incomplete. So some of the most common examples or, or definitions of grace, one is that grace is God's unconditional favor. I think that's true. I think that is accurate, but it's not everything. And here's why I don't think it's everything. Because when you go through scripture, you find that the word for grace is more often used to describe God's power than it is to simply describe his favor. It's one thing to unconditionally like someone. There's people I unconditionally like, but I'm useless to them. <laughs> right? I don't have the power necessarily to make their lives perfect. But what's interesting is scripture talks about God's grace making you able to do everything you need to do. Scripture talks about God's grace covering all your needs. Scripture talks about God's grace actually making you holy. So these are things that God actually does that are, that are full of his power. And so I think that God's grace in Scripture is, in fact, his unconditional favor connected with his unlimited power. 
And neither of these can be changed by you. That's the idea of unconditional and unlimited. You can't make God less favorable towards you, and you can't make God less powerful for you. So the way I, the little definition that I use, just because I think it's pretty simple and easy to hold on to, is that grace is God's unlimited power or unlimited desire and power to do good to you. He has a desire to do good to you, which is infinite, and you can't make it less. And he has the power to do good to you, which is limitless, and you can't make it less. It also means you can't make it more because it's already infinite. So when we spend time trying to make God more powerful, I think we would all recognize that's silly. But the same is true of his favor. When we spend time trying to make God more in love with you, that's silly. I mean, the truth is we have to always remember about the gospel that Jesus came and died for us when we were still his enemies, when we were still sinners, when we were not at all lovable. I, I heard C.S. Lewis talks in uh, one of his books, The Problem with Pain, he talks about how one thing that's interesting about God's love, we can think about it the way we treat dogs. Obviously, there's some limitations to this analogy, but he means this. He means what we do with dogs is we love them, and because we love them, we then train them to be lovable, not the other way around. He says we love a dog, so we teach it how to do things that make it easier to love, right? And he says that's the way God is with us. We don't, we don't love a dog because it's lovable and then train it because it's lovable. We just love dogs, and then we train them to be lovable. And God is the same way. He loves us and then trains us to become lovable people, <laughs> not the other way around. And I think that's pretty good. There's a, there's a picture there that makes sense. So he already loves us, and he's just moving us forward. So here we have the stewardship, something we don't own, that we are put in charge of to administer for someone else, of God's unlimited power and desire to do good to people. So what that really means is when, he's, when we say the stewardship of God's grace, and this is a phrase, by the way, we pulled directly from Peter. We didn't make this up. This is a scriptural phrase. Peter says we have a stewardship of God's grace. It means that we're given the actual power and love of God to bless others with. Now, it doesn't mean we're given all the power and love of God any more than a stockbroker is given all your money. At least I hope not. But it does mean that what we have is the power and love of God to bless people with. That God gives us a, something that we can bless people with that will actually have power and demonstrate his love for them. Remember how I said that I actually have learned more from people who have shown me grace about who God is? I think that's because they were using their stewardship of grace. And so it taught me something. It had power behind it. So what does this look like? What does it look like to share your stewardship of God's grace? Well, we'll get to those details in a few weeks. This is part of one of our other core values. But I just want to remind you that for now, what it says in this core value, number two, is that it's really as simple as a kind word and a simple service. It's interesting that when scripture gets into the actual stewardship of God's grace, it talks about spiritual gifts. That's a phrase a lot of us have heard. Anytime Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he basically breaks them down into two categories, words and service. Think about prophecy and healing. Think about teaching and hospitality. Think about, you know, uh, exhorting and giving. It always breaks down to words and service. And so that's why we say in this core value, we seek to make everyone's journey just a little easier today, specifically by the kind word or simple service that is our stewardship of God's grace. We believe that as Christians, we've all been given a slice of God's grace that we are steward of. I will throw this in before we kind of wrap up for the evening. And, and we're going to give some time for, uh, for a little bit of discussion and questions if you have them today. But, but I will wrap up with this just because I know some of you will run into this question. 
I mentioned our job is not tough love. It's not discipline. But what is tough love, and is there a place for it? Well, I'm not going to answer what tough love is because, honestly, I think it's very ill-defined, and it means something different to lots of people, and so there may be contexts in which it's correct. But I will acknowledge this and, and be really clear about this. I think we can say unequivocally that our job is to make everyone's journey a little easier. I believe that's what Scripture teaches. I believe that's what Hebrews teaches. It is relevant to note that it doesn't make someone's journey easier to let them throw themselves off a cliff. Right? <laughs> if somebody is literally walking towards the edge of a cliff and you're smoothing out the path so they can fall off the cliff and die, that's not making their journey easier. That's bringing their journey to a conclusion. Nor does it make the journey easier to let them walk into the mouth of a dragon. So I understand that there are times where making the journey easier for someone means maybe doing something or saying something that, that, that prevents them from going where they want to go. Making their journey easier in terms of becoming more like Christ doesn't always mean giving people exactly what they want. Now, interestingly enough, I think it more often means that than we think. <laughs> I think making the road easier for people more often means not chastising, not correcting than we think. But does that, is there room and does scripture tell us that sometimes we need to help correct people that faithful, says Proverbs, are the wounds of a friend? Sometimes making the journey easier means loving them in a way they won't see as love. So yes, that happens. But that can never be an excuse for simply being ornery, mean, or selfish, right? And I think if we start with the concept that our job is to make the journey easier for people, it will make us better able to navigate when making it easier is going to be a little hard. But our concept needs to be not that our job is to correct people, but that our job is to make the journey as easy as possible. And correction only comes in when that actually makes the journey as easy as possible. Does that make sense? So it's a matter of what our goal is. I also think that if we remember that God is committed to their training, and the Holy Spirit in them is committed to their discipline, it will make us feel less need to control every error and situation and struggle that everybody has. Sometimes I'll be with people and someone will share something really difficult. And I will have a suspicion in my mind that there's something they're doing that is making that more difficult. And I have a choice at that moment. Do I tell them that what they're doing will make that would, would, is making it more difficult, and if they would stop, then maybe I'm making the journey easier for them? Or do I not do that? And here's what's interesting. I think 10 years ago, I would have thought my obligation was almost always to tell them. But I've learned two things since then. One is, I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> when I think I know, I need to be careful. <laughs> because remember, I'm that father who doesn't discipline as well as I think I do. So even when I think, man, I just need to tell them and this will make their life better, I'm wrong a lot. Second thing I've learned is whether I'm wrong or right doesn't actually influence whether the person will listen to me or not. And the third thing that I've learned, and this is the most important of all, is that God isn't waiting for me to do that. God is working on that. God can literally show people things that I think they can't see and show me things that I don't see. And so I have learned over the time that if I trust that God is really training them, 
I find there are increasingly fewer times that I actually need to jump in and say, here's what you're doing wrong, and more times that I simply need to say, how can I support you on this bumpy road? How can I help you? And what's interesting I found is as I do that, then sometimes people will ask for more. And then they're willing to listen. If I come at this the other way, assuming that my job and my responsibility is to correct and that God is waiting for me to do it in order for it to happen, then I get controlling, I get frustrated when people don't do what I ask, and I don't listen to what they're really struggling with, and I do not become a safe place of comfort. And when they do realize that they need help and advice, I am the last person they will come to. Does that all make sense? So I hope you're seeing there's, a, there's an attitude and a tone here which says that our job is to make everyone's journey just a little bit easier. Use your words, use your services to make everyone's journey a little easier. By the way, notice that's not a passive core value either. It doesn't say our job is to stop correcting people. <laughs> that might be wrapped up in this. But our job is to actually make the journey easier, as the author of Hebrews says, to actually lift people up and walk with them, to actually smooth out the road. Those analogies are not easy analogies, right? Smoothing out a rough road is a lot of work. Bringing, it, it, it reminds us of what it says about Isaiah does for the Lord when he comes. Make every hill low and every valley high. That's a lot of work. We're building a highway through bad terrain so that it will be easier for people to cross. So it's not passive at all. It's a whole lot more fun than taking the weight of the world and everybody's sins and everybody's struggles and trying to correct and fix them all. We're not doing anything about that. Our basic job is to make the road easier and to support them as they move. And here's the last thing I'll say about this. Which kind of community do you actually want to live in? The one where people are always on the lookout for your sins and pointing them out as soon as they see them. The ones where people are always on the lookout for your mistakes and failings and pointing them out as soon as they see them. The ones where even though you're trying, people keep reminding you about where you're failing over and over and over. Or do you want to be in the community where people are loving you and supporting you and helping you move forward even though you fail a lot? It's an easy answer for me because I fail a lot. And I'm often aware of my sins and failings. <laughs> and you telling me again, eh. <laughs> maybe not what I need. All right. I want to close with this as our benediction, and it's actually from earlier in Hebrews, but I think it, it speaks to what he's talking about here in chapter 12. He clearly understands this as he says what he says in Hebrews 10. And this is verse, I want to bring up this verse because this is the verse that people often use to define a church. They won't say to you, this is what a church is, but I know this because during COVID, this is the verse people brought up more than often, more than, more than, more than often. They brought it up more than often. They actually did. More often than not, they brought up this verse to say why it was important that we keep meeting. They would say, this is what makes a church. And I think they're right. I just don't think it in the same way they did. I don't think it's about Sunday gathering. I think it's about much more than that. It says this. Let us consider, even just that phrase, let us think about, let us contemplate, let us chew on, let us make a lot of this, says the author of Hebrews. If we're going to focus on something, let one of the things we focus on be this. 
let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That, that's what making the journey a little easier is about. Gathering together, spring one another on towards love and good deeds. Not only should I be helping you by making the road smooth, but I should be helping you to make the road smooth for others. <laughs> and we need to do it more and more and more. Don't give up meeting together, but do this. And this, you, again, I hope you can see, this isn't something that actually happens most of the time in a service like this. You might say, you might think it does because you have maybe a pastor who's encouraging people to love and good deeds, but that's not what this says. It doesn't say, I, as your leader, will consider how to spur you on towards love and good deeds. That is, by the way, the, the responsibility, obligation, burden, and expectation on a lot of pastors, and it's a killer because it's impossible for a pastor to do. But it says, let us consider how we may spur one another. I mean, he could hardly be more clear. <laughs> this is a mutual obligation from all of us. And let us not give up meeting together for that purpose is the implication. You see that, right? As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more. All the more, every day, all the more. And I would say, you know, he says, as you see the day approaching, and of course it's true that every day that passes, we're closer to the day. He's referring to the end or the beginning, as we talked about a few weeks ago. But I would even say this. I do feel like we, I don't know how close we are to the end. I have no idea. I've never known. I won't know until it happens. That's, unless, I mean, I think that's true. God can give me a vision if he wants, but I'm not expecting it. But here's what I do think. I'm not saying because we're at the end, but I am saying that the times we live in, the culture we live in, the, the way that, that church has been defined in America, in our culture, in our time, I think this exhortation is all the more important. We need to remember and remind and practice what this looks like. I think even in Focus Church, we're learning still what this looks like because a lot of us haven't had this model. I don't mean our structure. I mean this model. I mean this idea of that it's your responsibility to make my way smooth as much as it's my responsibility to make your way smooth. I do not have a leg up on that. As a pastor, there's nothing that says I'm better at making your way smooth. Some of you are better at it than I am by far. My job is to facilitate that. And that does occasionally mean standing here and telling you that's what your job is. <laughs> My job is to help you with your job description. <laughs> that's good. So this is kind of what, this is what we do. Like I said, these core values drive us. So why do we meet in our groups? For this purpose. To make the journey a little easier. If you're wondering, what are we supposed to be doing in our groups? You know, you study scripture, you do a lot of stuff. Bottom line... Are you making the way easier for those around you? Are you seeking to do it just, and again, it doesn't have to be dramatic. Kind word, simple service. And because I believe you, it's a stewardship of God's grace, he'll give it to you. It'll be, some, it'll be natural if you look for it. It'll make sense to you to do it that way. All right. So what I'd like to do is turn off Facebook, turn up Eating Owl. Good job. Um, Facebook, thank you so much for coming. We're going to chat a little bit. If you ever want to join us in our chats, uh, message me. I'll give you the, the uh, Zoom meeting owl link. But for now, have a good night. 
Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.